Can you hear me? Okay, I think I'm on now. I'm so excited to be here tonight as we begin this journey in God's Word. Um, something that I want to share before I pray again, that's very important for each one of us to keep in mind as we're taking this journey together, is the power of studying the Word of God for ourselves. I'm not here tonight asking everyone to just take my word for it. I want you to search it out in God's word for yourself. It's vitally important to know and believe what the word of God says for yourself. And so it's an invitation as we begin this journey, as we begin to explore some topics, some questions that have challenged many a brilliant mind, questions that many people ask, you know, is is God responsible for evil is one of the questions we're tackling tonight. We're going to look for the Bible's answers. And I challenge you to look these up. And uh, part of helping you along with that, I've provided a packet. But you should still go look it up. Don't take the packet for it, because what if I change the Bible verses? Now, I'm not asking you to be overly suspicious, but I am asking you to investigate the Word of God for yourself. And so as we take this journey, I'd like to pray again and then we'll get started tonight. Father God, I just thank you so much that we can gather here, that we have the freedom to assemble right now to worship and study your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for watching over us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some famous words were spoken many years ago, four score, and seven years ago our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Of course, we know these famous words to be from Abraham Lincoln's speech, the Gettysburg Address. But these are words that ring true, hopefully still today, words that we all know. It's interesting that these famous words were spoken just 87 years after our founding fathers declared our nation's independence from the King of England. Our founding fathers, if you remember, declared in Congress July 4, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station that the laws of nature and the nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. This is the more famous part of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Words that we're familiar with, that we know well as American citizens. The United States of America was established as a land of freedom upon the principles of liberty and freedom of choice, freedom of speech and religious liberty were amongst its chief attributes. 
And this is important for us to understand when we consider the fact that this nation was brought forth to be a safe haven for Christianity. If we were to rewind to the first pilgrims that came on the Mayflower that set foot in Plymouth, New England, on November 11, 1620, they were fleeing religious persecution, seeking to establish a safe haven for religious liberty. For over a millennium, the Roman church had held Europe in spiritual darkness. And though the Church of England had in some ways cut its ties with the Church of Rome, it also was persecuting Christians too. The United States of America was a nation like none other. As the good old song says, which we know, My country tis thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. Fast forward 423 years. I mean, not 423 years, 403 years to the present day right now. We find ourselves living in a nation that is rapidly changing. And I was just... The other night, Thursday, CJ and Deanna and I, we visited a tent revival. And one of the pastors was invited up to just testify. And Pastor Mark, he got up and he shared how he's recognizing that, that Jesus is coming soon. Like this world is changing and this world is falling apart. And, and we don't have a lot of time left. Our liberties that we hold dear are on the line as freedoms are being stripped away from us daily. The fight for freedom that we are facing as a nation is a fight that has been going on for over 6,000 years. The Bible tells us of a great battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, a great controversy that demands a decision for every one of us. There won't be any neutral ground here. No one can sit on the fence. When we study the Bible, we realize that our God is calling us to make a decision. He won't force us. He won't choose for us. But he will lay out all the evidence. And he pleads with an everlasting love. You know, skeptics, they might say, well, you know, if God is is such a loving God, why is there so much pain and suffering? Why is there so much sickness, war, death, famine? These are questions that that people genuinely wrestle with. And this is why we're asking the question, what is the origin of evil? Is God responsible for evil? If you have your Bibles, join me in Revelation chapter 12. As we pick up the story. Revelation chapter 12 is a chapter that we're going to come back to throughout this series because it's a snapshot of the entire history of the conflict between good and evil and between God and Satan. Now we're going to focus in on verses 7 through 9 tonight. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. The Bible says, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought his angels had prevailed not, neither was their place found any more for him in heaven. 
And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. And he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. War in heaven. Words that almost don't seem to make sense. But right here we see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, that there's two main characters who emerge. Michael and his angels. And then we have the dragon, that serpent of old, the devil, and his angels. Two opposing sides. Now we're going to focus in for a moment on the devil, that serpent of old. When we're talking about a war here, we're not talking about some feature film like Star Wars or something. We're talking about a war, if you were to look up the original word in the Greek, polemos, which means a war of words. Now, in heaven, the devil essentially started the first angels' rights matters movement. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 14, if you have your Bibles. We begin to understand a bit about the devil's character. Now remember, we already know that the devil is the serpent of old. He's been cast out of heaven. And we're going to continue to find out more about his character in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15. The Bible reads, How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations. For you have said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to the sides of the pit. You shall be cast down in essence is what the Bible is saying. Now Lucifer is another name for the devil and if you ever question that you don't have to go too far to figure that out. Even the world acknowledges that. There's whole shows dedicated to making Lucifer appear as a good guy even though they know that he is actually demonic. But we begin to see some characteristics that line up. The devil, the serpent of old, was cast out of heaven. Lucifer is also cast out. It says he's fallen from heaven, O son of the morning. And then we begin to see something very interesting. Five times, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 15, we read the statement, I will. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud and I will be like the Most High. But the end result is he's brought down. He falls. And this teaches us a lesson about pride. Pride in the Bible has one prophetic outcome, a fall. As it reads in Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. The inverse is also true, my friends, of humility. True humility has one prophetic outcome, exaltation. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will what? Lift you up. So the devil says, you know what? 
I want to be like the Most High. In fact, not only do I want to be like the Most High, I want to set my throne above His because I've got a better plan. You know, God's law, it's kind of arbitrary. Why do I have to keep all these things? You know what? I think I could come up with a better way of living. I have a better plan for all of us to experience more freedom. And so this war begins. God is essentially on trial. Essentially, God is being accused, being arbitrary, controlling, self-centered. Now, it's kind of interesting. You can notice these tactics. They still exist today. Many people, when they accuse someone of, of being a bad person, often they're accusing them of the very thing that they are. And we can see this in the devil when he makes his arguments against God, when he insinuates in the story of Job, if you're familiar with that story, he says, you know what, God, human suffering comes as a result of you stretching forth your hand. And God has to stop him and say, you know what, no. All human suffering is a result of you stretching forth your hand. And this is the great debate. Is God responsible for evil or is the devil I mean, if God knew the devil was going to do this, why did he create him? We continue in our journey to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. And we're going to learn a little bit more here. The Bible in Ezekiel 28, verse 12 through 19, begins to give us a picture. Now, it's talking about the prince or the king of Tyrus. But we're going to see here very clearly that this king of Tyrus is also representative of Lucifer, the devil, that serpent of old. We're going to find out that this king of Tyrus was in the Garden of Eden, but that's not possible unless we're talking about someone else, that serpent of old, the devil. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12 says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. Sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, the emerald, carbuncle, and gold. And the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes were prepared in thee in the day that you were created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set thee so. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now remember... What mountain did Lucifer want to ascend above? He wanted to set up his throne above the mountain of God. So he was actually there in the presence of God, in the very glory of God. He was the covering cherub. Verse 15 says, You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. You have sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones. Your heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. You have corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Verse 19 says, All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. We're seeing a consistent theme here. 
Lucifer was in the mountain of God. He was perfect. He was in the Garden of Eden. But iniquity and sin was found in him. And the end result was he was cast out of heaven. So who's the second character at Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9? We read that there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil. And Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Who is the second character? Well, it's obviously Michael, but then we have to ask the question, who is Michael? Well, we already know that Michael and his angels fought the dragon in Revelation chapter 12, as we've read. So let's take a look now at a couple more passages of Scripture Jude chapter 9, or Jude verse 9. There's no chapters in the book of Jude, just verses. So we come to Jude verse 9. We learn a very interesting detail about Michael. Michael shows up a couple different places in the Bible. And Jude is right before Revelation. It's the book right before Revelation. It's very small. So as you're turning there, Jude verse 9 says, Yet Michael, the archangel, now... Make a mental note of that, highlight that, underline Michael the archangel. This is a very important description. Not only did Michael fight the dragon, but he is also the archangel. Okay? When contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. There's not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. So we get a little bit of a picture behind the scene. If you remember Moses, towards the end of his life, he makes a fatal mistake with the children of Israel. He gets upset after 40 years of almost flawless leadership. And he has a moment of passion and anger. And God says, you know what? You can't enter into the promised land. And now the veil is lifted. We get a scene, a picture behind the scene here where Michael the archangel is contending with the devil over the body of Moses. Now we know this from the gospel, right? On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah appear to him. So obviously we know that Michael the archangel won. But we see this battle behind the scenes. The devil who is the accuser of the brethren, who hates you and I, who wants to destroy us, is fighting against us. But we also see that Michael the archangel is fighting for us. And that's very important for us to understand as we keep going. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, we get another picture here of Michael fighting on behalf of his people. Daniel had been concerned and distressed about some of the visions that he had been receiving. And the prince of the kingdom of Persian, he says, withstood me. Michael is speaking here. One in 20 days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Verse 21, but I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, that there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. So God is trying to comfort him. He says that Michael had to get involved. Michael had to turn the mind of Cyrus, king of Persia, after Satan had moved against the Jews through an evil report from the Samaritans. There's a little history to what's going on when you compare the book of Ezra and Nehemiah with the story of Daniel. 
And so again, we see behind the scenes, there's a trial coming upon God's people. The king of Persia, Cyrus at the time, is withstanding God's plan, and Michael steps in again to fight for his people. And we're going to notice this theme continue at the end of the book of Daniel. In the 12th chapter, if you turn there, verse 1, a very important passage of Scripture which tells us that we're living right at the end of time. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 says, And at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since, the, since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book of life. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Michael will stand up. And what is he going to do for the children of thy people? And at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and at that time thy people shall be delivered. Here again we see in earth's darkest hour, when a time of trouble such as this world has never experienced before, has never seen, and we're going to learn about this time of trouble actually in the coming messages. But this time of trouble that this world has never experienced, in the midst of that time of trouble, Michael stands up again for his people and delivers them. Now, perhaps you've already figured out who Michael is. But now we're going to put this all together. Michael, you have this in your notes, means who is like God. He is the archangel, as we read in Jude chapter 9. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when it's talking about the second coming of our God, Jesus, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, The Lord descends from heaven with the voice of the archangel, and the dead are raised at his voice. Then when we read John chapter 5, verse 26 through 29, it makes it clear that the voice of Christ is the one who raises the dead. Thus, we understand who the second character is in this great controversy taking place in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. Jesus Christ, our Savior and Mediator, is the one that is fighting on our behalf. Jesus is Michael, and Jesus is our only hope as God's people at the end of time. The choice is ours. God will not force us. But this is the question for you and I to answer. Upon which side of the battle will you stand? Will I stand? We see that the war in heaven started with the devil. He fought against Michael, the archangel, Jesus Christ. And eventually, he takes this war right down here to earth, where it becomes personal and real to each one of us today. You know, just this morning, I went to pick up some parts for my car to do some repairs with Manny. Sometime, hopefully, later this week, we'll figure it out. But we're trying to work out our schedules. And as I was in there this morning, I, I was at the cashier and... Oddly enough, this guy's name was Michael this morning. And as I was talking with him, he asked me for my number to see if I was in the O'Reilly Auto Parts reward system. And 
So I gave him my number, and he's like, 360 area code, where is that from? And I says, Washington State. He's like, well, what brings you here? I says, well, I'm actually a pastor. And he begins to open up to me. And he shares, you know, I, I've been through a lot recently. I had an open heart surgery. I lost my son. I couldn't pay for my bills because I also lost my wife, so I've had to go back to work, unretire. People are hurting, are looking for hope. And I was just grateful that I had the opportunity to, to minister to Michael that morning. I had no clue. I was just going to pick up parts. But there's always an opportunity to share Jesus. Upon which side will you stand? Upon which side will I stand? Will we trust in the loving God of the universe or in the father of lies, the devil himself? Jesus, in his day, rebuked the children of Israel, the religious people, saying, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. The Bible is very clear that God is not responsible for evil, but rather it is the devil. He is the thief who seeks to kill and destroy. Now, I would put it to us in this example. Now, this example probably hits a little bit closer to home because we see different things in the media today about our current president, but I always like to use the current president when I do this illustration. If we were to wake up tomorrow and hear that President Joe Biden was accused of some great scandal by the senator of Texas, Ted Cruz. And it seems like there's a fair bit of evidence that seems to suggest perhaps this is legitimate. And so now all the news outlets are running breaking news. Some are probably saying this is misinformation and we're kind of used to this stuff by now. But like four days go by and it's Thursday later this week and we wake up and now there's a new breaking news headline. Senator Tez Cruz is surprisingly dead. What does everyone begin to think? <laughs> Perhaps there was some legitimate truth to what he was saying. That's an awful strange coincidence that four days after accusing the president of a high crime that probably could get him impeached, he's now dead. And now we have to put ourselves in God's shoes. When war broke out in heaven, oh, our God is all-powerful. The Bible is very clear that one day soon the devil will be destroyed. But imagine with me for a moment that when the devil first begins to leverage his accusations, he's, no, he's not the devil at this point. He's still Lucifer, the covering cherub in the very presence of God. He's a commanding angel. He's not just any angel. And he begins to say, you know what? God is arbitrary. He doesn't actually care for you. I've got a better plan. You're going to have more freedom under my government. If God just wipes them out with a snap of a finger, would the question have ever been settled for the angels in heaven? No. There still would have always been that question. Well, maybe he was right. But if I challenge it, God's just going to obliterate me. And so God has had to suffer as he's witnessed the painful results of sin running its course. 
Human suffering is not the responsibility of God. He's not the one guilty. But even in the midst of our suffering, God cares. We see this in the story of the fall of man. And this is where I'd like us to go as we close this evening to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where it all begins. Now remember, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, we find that the serpent of old is the devil. And so we're talking here of the prince of Tyre, who was also in the Garden of Eden, the anointed cherub, who shows up here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle or cunning or wise than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now what's the serpent or the devil trying to accomplish here in asking the woman this question? What is his goal? Doubt. The whole premise is to challenge God's authority to introduce doubt. And the devil does the same thing today. Does God really care for you? You're working nine-to-five job and you have to pick up an extra shift just to make ends meet and you don't even get to see your kids. Maybe you're divorced, your wife has left you or your husband has left you. Struggling to make ends meet. Does God really care for you? Questions that he asks us today. Did God really say? Then the woman, she responds to the serpent. She says, we may eat of every fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now it's interesting if you flip back a chapter and you read Genesis chapter 2, you'll find out that God never said they couldn't touch it. It's probably a good principle to follow. The moment you start to interact with sin, touch it, you're pretty much a goner. It's just generally how temptation works, you know. If you struggle with alcohol and you pick up the bottle, it's a recipe for disaster, right? If you struggle with lust and you grab a laptop and you start going down a certain pathway, it's a recipe for disaster, right? So there's wisdom in not touching sin, right? It keeps us from sin. But she's adding to the words of God because she finds herself trying to defend God when all she needed to do was walk away. I'm not even going to for a moment entertain doubt. But here we are in this moment. The devil's entertained this question. You know what? Can you really trust God? And he's attacking her relationship with God. And the story goes on. The devil responds and, and tells her, Woman, you shall not surely die. God is a liar. You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. God is withholding something from you. God is unjust. He's not truly fair. 
He doesn't want you to be like him. Sounds like all the things that the devil himself wanted. He said, I will be like the Most High. I want to be not only like God, but I want to be above God. And we read that the woman saw that the fruit was good. She took and ate, then she took it to her husband, and he also ate. Then the eyes of both of them, as it says in verse 7, were opened, and they realized that they're naked. They go and they make themselves a covering out of figs. Which is very interesting, because when we come to the end of the chapter, God himself covers them. And it's very important for us to recognize that from the beginning, salvation is not by our own works, but it is through the covering righteousness of our God. So they're naked and afraid, and finally God shows up on scene, and you'd be thinking that perhaps God... You know, the picture that some people have of God is God just looking to strike us down when we mess up. But I don't see that in this interaction here. Verse 9, it says, The Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? If God is all-knowing, he didn't need to ask this question. He knew where they were. But it's a simple question. Where art thou? And Adam, he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God speaking here, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I have commanded thee that you should not eat? Here again, God is just simply asking questions, trying to reason with them, trying to understand why they're in this mess. There's no condemnation. And that's something that we should take to heart, that we should remember that our God is, is not seeking to con- condemn us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but what? To save the world. There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That's the message of the Bible, that God is actually more interested in us getting back up than he is in the fall. And he comes to them asking questions, proving his character to be true years before the Bible would ever write the following. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, though you be guilty, caught red-handed, no way to deny the fact that you did wrong. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They shall, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is the message of the gospel. We don't deserve the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Not a single one of us will ever be able to stand up one day and say, I am here because I'm just an amazing person. I know I can't. I know in my own life the places where I've fallen short of the glory of God. You know what's sad about this story is the devil robbed us. He said that God is withholding something from you. That if you take of this fruit, you're actually going to be like him. You shall be like God's knowing good and evil. But do you know something? It was always God's plan for us to be like him. God's desire, his plan, was for us to be like him. The devil robbed us of God's original plan because he was truly jealous 
of what we could become. Yet despite all the damage that sin has done, God's plan remains unchanged. Even after the 6,000 years of sin, the Apostle Peter declared, whereby you and I are given exceeding great and precious promises that by these, you and I, all of us here tonight, might be partakers of the divine nature. The Bible's plan, God's plan, has not been changed. Though sin has entered into the picture, God's desire is still for us to become partakers of the divine nature. Sin simply means to miss the mark. That's one of the definitions from the Strong's Concordance. You can look this up online for yourself. That's the beauty of the day and age we live in. You know, back in the Dark Ages, it was like, well, you have to be a priest to study the original Greek. Today, Blue Letter Bible. Look up anything you want to look. You can see it there, just like the people who study for years. Now, I'm not saying there's no reason to never study the Greek manuscripts for yourself, but this stuff is available to us. And this is what sin is. Sin simply means to miss the mark. And I think that makes a lot of sense when we realize that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible defines sin in this way. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law, the breaking of the law. You've fallen short. Now this is interesting. When you read the story of Genesis chapter 3, where sin first enters into the picture, you would think that we would find the word sin in that chapter. But we don't. It's not until Genesis chapter 4 that the Bible uses the word sin for the first time in verse 7. If you do well, God is speaking to Cain. Shall you not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. Speaking here, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Meaning, will not your brother Abel follow your lead? But if you're not going to choose to do well, sin lies at the door. And I think this is very interesting. How many of you guys, when you've gotten up in the morning, you grabbed your bag, whatever you need, you walk out the door and you've tripped over the doormat before? Anybody? You know, I've tripped over the doormat before. And that's kind of like sin, right? It's just, it's crouching, hiding, looking to deceive us, looking to trip us up. But there's another door, and we get an entirely different picture of the love of Christ. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. While sin looks to trip us up, Jesus stands like a true gentleman, and he knocks at the door of our hearts. And he says, will you let me come in? My friends, where we miss the mark, Jesus more than hit the mark. At the end of time, the devil will be out to deceive. And we'll be talking about this. Matthew chapter 24, Revelation chapter 13. We'll be delving deep into the prophecies of the Bible. And we're going to see that the prophecies of the Bible are meant to point us to one person, and that is Christ Jesus. It's going to point out to us a system, the Antichrist system, right? Antichrist simply means to take the place of Christ. So if Bible prophecy shows us a system that is going to try and take the place of Christ, its end goal is to point us to Christ so that we are not deceived.
And this is the goal of the devil. He's going to be out to deceive at the end of time. He will make it seem like the best path for our own personal liberty and freedom and protection of our family is through conformity to this world. My friends, don't be fooled by the devil's deceptions. Don't allow him to rob you of your freedom that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Our only hope, our only freedom is through Jesus Christ by whom we gain entrance into everlasting life. Just like Patrick Henry, one of our founding fathers, said years ago, give me liberty or give me death. We may say, give me Jesus or give me death. As we continue this week, we're going to study from the garden to the cross what God has done for us. We're going to look at the judgment hour. We're going to look at the beauty of God's law. We're going to study into the book of Daniel. And all of it is going to point us to Jesus, our Savior. And so if you want to say with me tonight, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. I want to invite you to join me and singing our closing song for the night. I believe our pianist is on the way because she's also been preparing some amazing food for us. Some light refreshments. It's not a full-on meal, but some light, tasty refreshments afterwards for us to fellowship together. But if you recognize that we're living in a world where our liberty is on the line, our freedom to choose, freedom to even worship the way God has called us to worship. And you want to draw closer to Jesus, you sense him calling. I just invite you to stand with us as we sing our closing song, Give Me Jesus. This is a classic. Um, The words are powerful. Number 305 in the hymnal. We come back to that garden, that fateful day. You remember that after God asked them the question, they admit what has happened, they begin to play the blame game. And then God gives them some consequences that are going to result because of their decisions. Pain in childbirth, man has to till the ground by the sweat of their brow to earn their bread. These are the curses of sin. Now remember where man missed the mark and fell short of the glory of God. Christ has more than hit the mark for you and I. He is the perfect sacrifice. And in every way, Jesus took upon the curse of sin. And a lot of times when we see pictures of Christ dying on the cross, he's covered with a nice loincloth. But the Romans were not so kind when they crucified people. It's understood historically that Christ was likely crucified naked. And the first consequence of sin was they realized that they were naked. No longer were they without shame, but Jesus on the cross, he takes our shame. And if there's one man who could argue, who could say, you know what, I've experienced more pain than a woman in childbirth, I would say Jesus could make the case for that argument. Because he carried the weight of the sins of the entire world. 
where man was made to till the ground with thorns and thistles, Christ wore a crown of thorns. And at the tree where sin originated, right, Christ dies on a tree, and the fruit of that tree is salvation to all who believe. So you can have all this world, my friends, but Jesus is saying, I want to give you something better. And if you want to say with me, you know what? Give me Jesus. This world's got nothing worth holding on to. Give me Jesus. I want to take a journey through God's word. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, this is our prayer. This is our plea tonight. Give me Jesus. Lord, this world has nothing to offer us that can ever truly satisfy us. Lord, we've learned tonight that the Bible is very clear that the devil is the one who is truly responsible for evil. And we're going to learn that God will one day soon deal with the devil. But Lord, we don't want to be deceived. And so tonight our plea and our prayer is give us Jesus. If that's your desire, to hold on to Jesus and, and take a journey with him through his word. Just raise your hands as all heads are bowed. Lord, you see those that have made a decision to say tonight, give me Jesus instead of this world. Thank you, Lord, for hearing and answering this prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.